On uh, Christmas Day, I ended up hunched over. I was in agonizing pain. Um, I actually had to sing on Christmas morning, kind of in this position. It was slightly awkward. I ate my Christmas dinner uh, with great difficulty uh, and spent the rest of the day uh, on strong painkillers and uh, kind of constantly going, oh, ah. Uh, and um, you're probably asking yourselves, I wonder what you did. Was it from uh, dancing in a really fancy manner? Uh, did he put too much weight uh, on the... Uh, the, the bench press or the deadlift when he was at the gym, <laughs> neither of those things. No, uh, actually what I did was I tied my shoelace uh, on Christmas morning just as we were leaving the door to go to church. Um, I really wanted to get healthy uh, in 2019 and exercise uh, and keep fit uh, and uh, it really did start well, but how so easily uh, other priorities crept into my life, uh, namely I had a daughter uh, so that didn't start the new year well in terms of uh, being able to get out of the house so regularly. Uh, but really, uh, I filled my time more with watching Netflix, with uh, eating pulled pork burgers from Oink, uh, and generally having naps rather than uh, going to the gym. Uh, Adam uh, so helpfully introduced us to uh, uh, New Year's resolutions and the uh, almost impossibility it is of keeping them. Uh, and uh, my hunchback was a, a demonstration uh, that I literally could not keep mine either. Uh, New Year's resolutions are essentially priorities. Uh, and priorities, are, uh, they're vital. And they say a lot about what we cherish. Uh, and our passage uh, this evening in Haggai actually centers on God's people, uh, their priorities, and what it says about who they are uh, and what they cherish and that they needed to uh, hear a message, a message of rebuke, uh, but a message of encouragement in order that they might get on with the primary task that God has called them to do. So we're going to jump in, but if you, if you uh, haven't got your Bible open, please open uh, your Bible to Haggai. If, you, if you're in the Red Church Bible, it's page 948 uh, in the, the Red Church Bible, so please do turn to Haggai, and I don't know about you, but the, the minor prophets and the post-exile period in all of God's revelation is some of the most patchy in my own experience, and I can tell that by the, the crisp white pages in my Bible uh, as we get to the second half of the Old Testament. Uh, and so what we're going to do is a little bit of kind of historical calibration in order to, to, to get us where we need to be. So we are post Exile, that'll be the, the, the next slide, please. Uh, we're post-exile. God's people have, um, after being brought into the land through great signs and wonders uh, and a great rescue of the gracious God, have actually been ejected. They've been spat out of the land for their spiritual adultery, for their, their rank uh, injustice, and for their constant breaking of God's laws. Uh, the, the historical concept context at the time. Uh, there were two particular superpowers, uh, Babylon and Persia. In the year 586, uh, Judah, uh, the remaining uh, uh, area of Israel, uh, the people of Judah were besieged by Babylon uh, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and God's glorious temple built by Solomon uh, was decimated and the city burnt to the ground. Uh, and only 20 years later, sorry, 40 years later, Babylon, 
that destroyed Israel were defeated uh, by another superpower, Persia, and their king was Cyrus. Now, I know a lot of you, you're really fired up when we start talking about dates, King Nebuchadnezzar, 586, and all of the, the historical context with the Babylonian Empire. And others uh, of you, if you haven't switched off already, uh, you're about to if I continue down in this trajectory. Uh, and so I'll um, um, encourage you all now, uh, there'll be not too many more dates and facts. Um, in fact, uh, but we do really want to set this important historical context um, to understand where we are in terms of God's revelation uh, and uh, God's work among his people. And so uh, when I refer to the, the Babylonians, they're just going to now be the blue team. Uh, and when we refer to the, the Persians, they're going to be the Persian pinks, they're going to be the pink team. Um, and so, so the blue team were defeated by the pinks, um, and uh, essentially uh, the blues, uh, as a people, they were much more uh, oppressive. Uh, they wanted to, when they captured their people, they would try and uh, train them and indoctrinate them in all things blue. I think you remember uh, Daniel and his friends, they were, they were taken captive and they were trained in all things Babylonian. But the pinks, they were, they were slightly different. Um, the pinks, in fact, they thought uh, they might get a better workforce and less aggravation if they just let the people go back to their homelands, if they let them stay where they were um, and let them worship their own gods uh, and uh, just kind of pay allegiance to them as a, an overarching superpower. And so that's what the pink Persians did. Uh, and uh, their leader, Cyrus, uh, made a decree writing that the Jews who had been taken in captivity uh, could go back to Jerusalem and could rebuild their city. And you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1. You know, more than sending them back, though, more than releasing them from captivity, they actually uh, decreed that they could have a blank check drawn from the pink Persian treasury in order that the Jews could go and rebuild their city and rebuild the temple. Incredible. Uh, God orders uh, history. He is the God of history, and he orders all of it. Kings, pagan kings, and his people. He's incredible. So the Jews uh, were now to return back from uh, uh, captivity under the Babylonian blues, now under the pinks, and they come back in three main waves. And wave one is where Haggai uh, comes in. And so um, the people come into their homeland uh, you can read about this in Ezra 3, and they, they clear ground zero. Uh, the foundations of the temple were laid. Uh, God is worshipped. They offer sacrifices in line with the law of Moses. Uh, they celebrate new festivals, and they're worshipping the living God in the way that he commanded them to do so. But all of a sudden, they've stopped. They've stopped doing that. They've stopped building the temple. Uh, that's the next slide, please. The, the next slide after that as well. Thank you very much. And so God reveals to them, God reveals to the people um, uh, the problem that he's identified. Look at verse 1 with me. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month. This is a, this is a time stamp. It's almost like a rubber stamp has been hit on this date for us. And so since uh, the pink leader, Cyrus's decree... And since the people have returned back into their land, it's almost been two decades, 20 years since the people began building the temple and they've stopped. And so God sends the messenger. He sends Haggai. The word of the Lord, verse 2, came through 
the prophet Haggai. And verse 2 tells us that God's people were saying, it's not quite time to build the Lord's house yet. And the question is why? Why were people saying that it's not quite time to build the Lord's house? Well, you might remember in Jeremiah 25, chapter 11, he actually prophesied that God's people would go into exile and it would be 70 years that Israel would serve their enemies. And so 70 years, if exile was 586, the equation's on the board, 70 years after that, it's the year 516. And Haggai's prophecy, because it's so easy to date, it was the 29th of August, 520, we can do that by working out the dates in Ezra and in Haggai, they're four years from that. So it's, they've got four years. You can imagine it, can't you? They're, they're back in the land, they've got a blank check from the treasury, and someone says, well, we need to, let's get building the temple. And somebody else says, wait a minute, have you not read the scriptures? <laughs> We've got another four years yet. The people are, are using the Bible in order to try and deny the work that God has called them to do. And this is a fundamental work. It's the temple that they're building. And if you're new here, or if you're not aware of the significance of the temple, it's not just a place where the people of God worship him. It's much more than that. It's the center of the teaching of the law. It's the, it's the hub of the sacrificial system in order that God's people might find atonement for their sins. It's the center of the priestly system that the people might confess their sins and find forgiveness. It's the symbol for heaven converging with earth, and it's where God dwells with his people. It's meant to be a picture of the temple garden back in Eden, and it's a shadow of the great temple to come in the new creation. And without this temple, the nations around Israel could not witness the majesty, the holiness, and the generosity of God's sovereign rule. It's essentially a visible representation of life with the invisible God. It's a visible representation of life with the invisible God. And so, given the significance, it's a legitimate question to say, what had they been doing for the past two years, uh, two decades? There are two main reasons that we can see from the text as to why they stopped doing this work, why they stopped building the temple, why they stopped doing the primary work that God had called them to do. One of these is fear. There'll be a verse up on the screen here. Ezra 4 tells us that the sinful nations around Israel, they wanted to help them build the temple. So the nations that surrounded them, the nations that were worshipping various false gods, wanted a part in building the temple of the one true God. So naturally, the people said, do one. No, <laughs> The temple work, the temple building is for God's people alone. And so these nations, these nations around them, uh, began to oppress them. They were angry and they sought to discourage them. And Ezra 4, verses 3 and 5, which will be uh, up on the screen, uh, they discouraged them. They were fear-mongering. They, in fact, they bribed dodgy police officials. And there was physical pressure. Uh, back, Just back again, 
we go. Um, there's physical pressure. And, and you'll see as well uh, that it was relentless because it, it, the pressure continued from the time of King Cyrus's decree all the way down to King Darius. And so you can kind of understand why they might have stopped building the temple. There's genuine fear. There's oppression. There's political opposition. Uh, with the news uh, recently uh, today about uh, the Usher Hall banning Destiny Church and the banning of uh, Franklin Graham coming to speak because of his political views, we can kind of get an insight in what it's like to be uh, in that kind of an environment enemies of the gospel. But actually, that's not the primary reason that they've stopped building the temple. In fact, verse 3 of Haggai and the Lord's revelation through Haggai tells us, look down with me at verse 3 if you will. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. Now, this is basically a 6th century slap in the face, and it might be lost on us 21st century people. So, um, basically, houses in Israel would have been made of stone, typically. And so this, this paneled housing, it's basically like a fancy, a fancy cladding, a, an external addition to make the house kind of look pretty on the outside. I suppose a 21st century um, comparison might be a soffit and fascia kind of update on the external part of your house. Maybe a little extension. It's not quite grand designs, uh, but it's almost a, certainly additional cosmetic work. And what's the problem with this? Well, there's nothing inherently sinful about cedar cladding. There's nothing inherently sinful about paneled housing. But it's a priority issue. Firstly, these things were costly, and they would have taken up a significant amount of time. And so there's a question then, if this is the case, how are God's people using their resources in order for the work that God has called them to do? Their focus is, is all off. Their house is nice and pretty, and the temple hasn't even got a roof. It's got a foundation, and that's it. So they were scared, yes, but actually they were distracted more than anything. They were actually comfortable in their complacency. Again, they'd forgotten the primary task. How were the nations around them to hear about this great God and have his plan of salvation if his people couldn't even be bothered to build the temple? And so God rebukes the people. He rebukes the people for their inverted priorities. And he sends a series of bad harvests. Look at verses 6 and 9. You have planted much but harvest is little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You see, the law told God's people that if they rebelled, if they went after other gods, if they had other priorities, that the Lord would punish them. He would hit them where it hurts. They would feel it in the pocket. And so, the sovereign Lord withholds his material blessing. He stops the crops. He stops the crops growing. He stops rain and he sends disaster. And he promised to do so. Read Deuteronomy 28 when you're at home, the great blessings and curses passages. And obviously in an agrarian society, this is it's lethal. 
And it's all encompassing as well. Look at verses 10 and 11. You expected much, but see, it turned out little. What you brought home, I blew away. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for drought on the fields, that's bad enough, and the mountains. That's where the rivers come from. That is not good. On the grain, on the new wine, olive oil, everything else the ground produces, on people, livestock, on the labor of your hands, this is full, encompassing rebuke. This is God's divine displeasure, and it hurts. And it's disastrous. It would have produced hunger, skyrocketing food costs, inflation, and deprivation. And you know, God, he does this in our lives occasionally. He'll take away the thing that we're treasuring more than him, or he'll send circumstances in our lives, often painful ones, that show us that the thing that we've been trusting in cannot and could never provide what we're seeking for in it. And the reason he sends it is in order to draw us back to him in all of God's rebukes for those of us who are his children. Therefore, are good. That's what Hebrews 13 tells us. And in this, God's intention in striking them is to bring them back to him is to shake them out of their spiritual slumber and to reorientate the priorities aligning them with his priorities God wants them to get the first things first the priorities were all off piste they'd forgotten about God's grand plan the big picture all nations under earth worshiping the one triune God and his people rather than giving their time and their energy and their resources to building the temple They'd just been working on their own houses. And I think it's a, it's a question for my own heart as I prepared this sermon this week and a question for all of us who sit here under God's word today. Are we distracted by worldly comforts and worldly treasures and various commitments at the expense of doing the primary job that God has called us to do? And you might be asking, okay, what is that primary task? Because knowing that will help me prioritize what it is that I'm called to do. Well, brothers and sisters, you'll be pleased to know that it's not building a physical temple. We're not being asked to extend Charlotte Chapel by taking over some dog or moving into pret next door. That is not what we're asked to do. In fact, Jesus Christ is our temple. He and we, through union with him, our spiritual stones being made into a glorious house. Paul touched on that last week in his morning sermon. 1 Peter chapter 2. So the work that we're called to do is not physical temple building. It's a, it's a people work. We're called to bring people in and build people up. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, he actually, as he writes to them, he pictures this living and growing temple body New creations in Christ, reconciled to God, the old dividing wall removed away, and each one grows as he or she uses the God-given gifts that he has given them for the mutual upbuilding of one another and the proclamation of this message as it goes out to the utter ends of the earth. And so it's bringing people in and building people up. And so the question is, what, what does that work look like for you, what is the primary work that the Lord is calling you to do? What, 
gifts has God given you as part of his body, as part of his temple that you are to use to serve him? There is an enemy out there. There's an anti-Christian sentiment that is growing in its hostility. And so there is a real enemy, but I don't think our, um, our main issue is fear. That's not why we stop doing the primary work that God calls us to do. By my assessment, uh, I think, and by God's word, according to Haggai, the reason that the people aren't doing the work that the Lord's called them to do is because they're distracted. And I think the problem for us in Western evangelicalism, the problem for us in Charlotte Chapel, the problem for me stood here is not fear, it's distraction. I'm distracted by the trivialities of life while my neighbors go starved of the gospel. One author said, we're always building one of two kingdoms, either Christ's or our own. And so the question is, are you choosing to serve the kingdom of, expen- uh, the kingdom of um, experience, the kingdom of career, the kingdom of education, the kingdom of uh, self, over and above the work that Jesus Christ has called you to do in making him known and in building up your brothers and sisters in this place? Are you choosing one of these kingdoms at the expense of serving in this church as an elder or a deacon or an AV technician or a musician because each one of these roles is absolutely vital for the mutual upbuilding and the strengthening of us as God's people that we might as a body proclaim the news of Christ so that more are gathered in. And so the question is, how can we orientate our priorities from our own sinful, selfish focus to be more like his priorities? One pastor said, inverted priorities are essentially idolatries. Inverted priorities are essentially idolatries. And so we want our priorities to be aligned with the sovereign Lord. The only way that we can do this is by looking to Christ. In our own strength, we are weak, we are distracted. Adam said this morning, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we need to look to the great example, our high priest, the one, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself could have been distracted. We heard this this morning. Christ could have been distracted with great things. He could have been distracted by healing others. But in fact, he uh, at times took time aside in order to do the primary work that the Father had set for him, which was to preach the gospel and to make a beeline for the cross. With unwavering determination, the Lord set to do the primary work that God had called him to do. Christ could have rightly been uh, fearful uh, of the culture around him. He had a, a, the greatest enemy against him and yet took at the cost of his own life, at the cost of his own suffering, at the cost of his own bloodshed, faced that enemy for us. And so, brother, sister, what is it that you're scared of? What is it that you are distracted by? Look to him. Look to his example. Meditate on the cost 
survey the wondrous cross. Look to him, the one who has given us his spirit in order that we might live lives increasingly pleasing to him, increasingly offered up as a pleasing sacrifice to him that we might do more, that we might say more, that we might live more radically for him. You know, building the temple, it, it was hard work. Lifting boulders, sweeping rubble, carrying heavy things, you know, giving up their donkey for an afternoon in order that things might be carried along. It was financially burdensome and it was dangerous. But it was rewarding. It was that the nations might come to know the living God. And brothers and sisters, the same's for us. Building the kingdom, making Christ known, is hard work. It's tiring. It's exhausting sometimes, but it's the most valuable thing. It's the primary thing. It's the most important thing that any of us could ever do on this planet. It's so that verse 8 might be a reality. That God might take pleasure in and through his people and that he might be honored, honored among the nations. And in all of this, we need to recognize that it's the Lord who brings the increase. We're simply called to to water and to plant, uh, and it's the Lord who brings the increase. In fact, we can't do a single thing unless we're enabled by his spirit. We labor with the work that he's given us, entrusting him to add his number to the church and to grow us in Christ-likeness. And so we need to hear the message that Haggai's people heard all those years ago. God reminds his people of his immediate presence, verses 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Josadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So Haggai's preached the gospel. He's preached to the people. And this impact is unprecedented. So not only the leaders, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, They've believed, they've obeyed, but actually it says that revival swept across the whole people of God. The the whole remnant believed. And so we're not to miss that this is a bona fide 100% work of the sovereign Lord. These verses are absolutely saturated in his name. There are five, uh, uh, five verses and Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord, is used eight times. Eight times. We're not to miss that this is God's work. So we see it firstly in the fact that it's the Lord who sends the prophet Haggai. He's the one who gives the message. He's the reason that the people fear and obey. Our hearts in and of ourselves could not do it. Their hearts could not do it. It's a move of the Lord. It's the Lord who sent the poor economic circumstances in order that the people might be shook out of their spiritual lethargy. And it's the Lord who reminds them of this great truth in verse 13. Look with me at verse 13. Haggai's message uh, was four simple words. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Four simple words, but they actually stretch back a millennia. These words, I am with you, are not 
uh, a physical representation of where God is in space and time. Don't worry, I'm, I'm right next to you, although it's not less than that. But these words accompany the covenant faithfulness of the promise-keeping God, the promise of a renewed kingdom, and the promise of a God that would dwell with his people, not leaving them, not forsaking them. You remember we've been going through Isaac, in, uh, we've been going through Genesis in our uh, evening sermons, uh, in our evening service. Uh, and uh, Isaac, uh, after the death of his father, the Lord spoke to him, letting him know that all of the promises given to Abraham will be fulfilled through Isaac. And he reminds him, he encourages him with these words, I am with you. Jacob, the schemer and the plotter, stealing his birthright through deception, and yet the Lord in his covenant faithfulness, because of his own character, repeats these words, I am with you. And whether it's Moses or Joshua at the edge of the promised land, or David or Gideon or Solomon, each one was motivated to get on with the work that the Lord had called them to do because of the covenant faithful promises God, the, the God that dwells with his people, the God that promises, I am with you. And so the, the people, they're back in the land, they're under foreign pagan rule. The temple's still unbuilt. They've just come back from exile. They're weak and weary. Their crops have died. And so the temptation to look around and ask the question, is God with us? <laughs> is this going to be the culmination of God's promises from the prophets of old that, he, that all the nations are going to, going to flock here and worship the one true living God? There's discouragement. There's fear. But actually, it's the message that God is with them that encourages their people, that strengthens them, that moves them to do the work that God has called them to do. This phrase, I am with you, it's four words, but it tells us so much about the character and the purposes and the promises of God. It allows the people to look back and say, ah, oh, I see he's been with us. He's, with, he's been with our forefathers. He was with us through our rebellion, with us through our exile, and he's now with us as we return into the land. And he's the God that we can trust. And it's this truth that spurs the people on in verse 14 to get on with the work that the Lord had called them to do. So they came about and they began the work on the house of the Lord Almighty. And on the 24th day of the sixth month, that's about a month later, 24 days, they'd responded to the call and they'd got on with the work that the Lord had called them to do. Do you know the temple itself uh, was actually finished in five years after this? Now it might sound like a long time, but it actually stood for a further 400 years until the rebuilding of Herod's temple at the time when Christ walked this earth. And the people completed this work because they prioritized what was primary. And so brothers and sisters, I just want to say how much in the age of the church, how much as the Spirit has been poured out, how much more after the time of Emmanuel, God with us, the church being indwelt by the Spirit of God, should we be motivated to get on with the primary work that the Lord has called us to do? What is it that's distracting you? What is it that's causing you fear of speaking when you should speak or opening your home when you should open your home or serving where you should serve? What is it that's distracting you or discouraging you? Remember, the Lord's promise is, I am 
with you. We can look back and see his promises of old, and we can look to today and see his promises of his abiding presence. Matthew 28 says, All of authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. That's Jesus. And so therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's gathering people in. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's building them up. And how does he close it? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the promise of our Lord. And so the challenge is, this year, for me, for you, how are we going to prioritize the work that the Lord has called us to do? We're to know that he is with us. He is the one who enables us. He is the one who equips us. He is the one who uses us in our weakness. Why? Because that's all we've got. There aren't those that can do and those that can't do. There are just those that can't do. And those that can't do, the Lord enables by his spirit. That's all of us. That's encouraging. If you're a Christian, the truth is that the Lord is with us. How? By his indwelling spirit. By the risen Lord Jesus in and through us. And he is the one who gifts us. He is the one who enables us. And so... Brothers and sisters, as I close, the work is hard. There's no doubt about it. It's dangerous. There's a real enemy, but it's worth it. There is nothing, nothing on earth more important than gathering people in and building people up, making Christ known to this world. You know, the temple, as I said, it lasted 400 years. Incredible. The work that we're engaged in lasts an eternity, forever and ever and ever. What could be more important than that? We all long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant.